I'm going to invite uh, David, David Barr, to come and join me here at the front. I know some of you know David. Oh, my notes are over there. <laughs> some of you know David, some of you maybe don't. I want to thank him for being willing to do this. David, do you want well, to check you. your microphone? Hello, that working okay? Is that okay? Everyone can hear me at the back, yes? Yes. Always good news. It's got a Lurgan accent, so if that's... Kind of thick there, I apologize. So if it is too thick, just raise your hand and we'll... <laughs> not if he's too thick, if it's too thick. <laughs> that may not be solvable, unfortunately. <laughs> David, tell us, uh, how old are you? Where do you currently live and work? And how long have you been kind of coming to Windsor? Okay, I'd be 28 years old. I have to think about that. Yeah, I think that is correct. It's worrying whenever you reach the stage, you have to probably count. I'm from Lurgan originally, but I've lived up in Belfast since I went to university here at Queen's, and that's going back a few years now. But I, I work across in Bangor at Glenola Collegiate School. I teach religious studies. It's an all-girls school across there. So I was taught there, this is my fourth year at Glenola Collegiate, and though I've been in Belfast, I've been coming to Windsor about 18 months now, although the time has gone very quickly. Great. David, tell us about uh, your family. You said you grew up in Lurgan, but, but tell us about your, your family. Okay. Um, my family is quite a large family. Um, I was the firstborn. There's some of us up on screen. I was the firstborn, the, and I was obviously a boy. And um, after that came five younger sisters. So I was, it's, I guess it's kind of almost inevitable that really I'm working in an all-girls school. I got a lot of practice in that to an extent. So um, yeah, it was my mum and dad originally had way back, they were both at Queen's and they had originally planned to go across to well, they were talking India, be missionaries, and didn't plan to have any kids. Uh, personally, I'm quite glad they changed their mind. <laughs> but, um, yeah, five younger sisters. There's four, if you're counting, there's four up there on screen. That's a very recent photo uh, from us in Guatemala last summer. And, yeah, but five younger sisters, and we'll get to that in time. Okay, some, some of you may know David's uh, mum and dad, uh, Dickie Barr, D David's dad, and, and his mum set up Care in Crisis in, in Lurgan a number of years ago, and Out of Care in Crisis grew Love for Life, uh, and Love for Life have been operating for a number of years. We may say a little bit more about that later yeah. on, but David, tell us, where, where are your... Four, these four, the four sisters are in this picture at the moment. They're all different. If, if we start in terms of across, at in terms of the left, move, uh, moving across, the next one is Rebecca, and I think Rebecca's actually here tonight. Am I right? Yeah, there's a little wave, Rebecca. Welcome, Rebecca. You. So <laughs> Rebecca was trained in nursing, but she's just actually qualified in midwifery. So she is a midwife, and just actually this week just got a job. So congratulations, Rebecca, officially. So uh, and yep. And she long-term would love to um, be a midwife out in Uganda. That's been her heart for years. She's brilliant. Next is Natalie. And Natalie is, uh, Rebecca, sorry, would be the next oldest after me. Then Natalie. And Natalie's across in America at the current time, starting to be a teacher. She got a, she's played hockey all the way through Ulster, Ireland, and got, has, uh, ended up being offered a hockey scholarship to play for university out there. She's been across for a good number of years. The twins, are the two that are beside me, Bethany and Serena, they're the youngest. And they are also across in America, in Virginia, and doing the same thing. They also got a hockey scholarship across there, so three of them play there. So three sisters who played hockey for Lurgan College, yep. for Ulster, yep. and for Ireland. That's right. And now in America. Played. And I never played hockey at school. That's I played rugby, and you could probably... At your size? Well, that's what I was about to say. Would you believe my school wasn't very good at rugby? If I was playing for the team, that probably says a lot, really. Okay. <laughs> now, David, you said here are four of your sisters. Yeah. Uh, but there's a fifth. That's true. That's so this is the six of you. Six yes, of you over that's right. Uh, 
left as people are looking at it. Tell yeah. us about how you got Charlene as a family. Well, Charlene is, she's just in front of me in the photo there, in terms of up on the, le on the left, and Charlene, Charlene's brilliant. Charlene was, she was born with cystic fibrosis, and she's really, what happened very early on was her mother wasn't able to take care of her, and Charlene spent the first year of her life in hospital in, in, across an Armagh Royal, and she wasn't expected to make a year. She was very, very sick, but at a matter of weeks, she had to go basically an operation because cystic fibrosis. By cystic fibrosis, it's uh, really an illness with excess mucus building up in the lungs, and it meant that her breathing was never good. It caused real problems for her all across her dietary tract, and just was really, really difficult for her. And it was a case of for the first year, she was there entirely, and a lot of times she was going into the operating theater where nurses didn't really know if she would make it and she's going in there alone with there not being a parent figure there for her when she came out of surgery. And it was really a situation where we know much later on there were some incredible nurses who every night when they were finishing their shift would pray over her. And they prayed because they didn't know when they came back in the next morning whether she would be there. And just thinking now of the full story as to how God honored those prayers is incredible and just an encouragement about the power of prayer. But Charlene did survive her first year and at that stage, on a slightly separate story with my mum and dad. At that time, it was myself and Rebecca, and my mum and dad had talked together about doing a little bit of short-term fostering. And really, that started out with a couple of uh, young children and for sh almost short-term placements, but then eventually my dad was contacted by uh, social services, and they said, there's a young girl, she spent the first year of her life in hospital. She's still not expected to really, you know, her health is not very high. She may not make that much longer, but we would like to try and see a period if she could be outside a hospital. And because my dad's a GP, they said, you know, would you be interested in this? And my mom and dad knew it was going to be a big commitment because, for example, she would have needed physio every day, all the different medication, all of that. But very quickly, they decided, yes, in the short-term placement, definitely. And, yeah, this is a day, and... Uh, all I can say is blame my parents for the shirt in that photo. <laughs> but, um, so this is the day that we first met Charlene. So um, that's myself and then Rebecca to the side, and Charlene's little girl the nurses are holding. Some of those are those who prayed, prayed over her. So we went across, and Charlene was brought back to our home for what was initially a short-term placement. And just to give a quick example of what, really what things have been like for her to an extent, when I, on the way home, uh, when we were in the car leaving, uh, coming back to Lurgan from Belfast, Charlene cried the whole way. And up to this point, when she was in the hospital, she was chirpy as anything. And we, mum and dad, were trying to work out why that was. And suddenly, Rebecca had an, uh, just an idea and flicked the light on. As soon as the light came on, she'd stop crying like that. And we worked it out. She had spent the first year of her life always on artificial life. She'd never seen darkness because she'd just literally been in the hospital the entire first year of her life. So it started out as a short-term fostering. But that was extended and extended, and very quickly, very quickly, well, as far as I remember, she was my sister. I always, always saw, saw it as that. And for mum and dad, mum especially had it in her heart, just really, that Charlene had gone into surgery many times with not knowing if she would survive and with nobody there for her when she came out. And my mum and dad both really committed early on that they would love if God granted the opportunity for, for however short a time it may be, that when it came to the end, will that be months? weeks, months, or years, they wanted to be with her all the way through and at the end. So, so David, tell us, what was life like in those kind of early yes. years with, with Charlene? What was her capacity like in those early yeah. years? Charlene, uh, Charlene was always incredibly enthusiastic. I mean, literally, she did not let her 
illness hold her back as much as she could. Like there was many times, even the whole thing of the really cheesy family videos you have that you sometimes watch back, of us out in the garden just playing, and I remember this vividly, playing, doing different races, different, you know, uh, gladiator fights and so on. And always it was a case that Charlene was in the thick of it, but she could never run quite as fast. She could never, her, she would have to take a rest after a while because of her lungs. She just couldn't, you know, wasn't able to keep up. And that was hard for her, but she always, she never let it get to her. She never complained. And there were times that were really hard. I do remember one Christmas, and this was going back when she was very young, where again, she was in that hospital a lot. And she was sent home again because she was, went essentially home for Christmas because I thought that would be the end. She had only been about two or three. And I've, obviously I was young, quite young. I don't remember, I have just vague memories of my dad every single night, you know, when the physio with her really like, really watching over her and so on. And by God's grace, she, you know, she really, she came out of that illness, that, that period of real sickness, and you know, flourished in that. And really, the, they'd said she wouldn't really get beyond a year, but then she got to primary school. Again, at that stage, they said she wouldn't really survive primary school. She did. And there'd be long periods in that hospital, and I do have a lot of memories of really, after school, us all getting into the car, going up, because any time she was in hospital in the Royal, that was our regular routine. Every single night, the whole family would have got, uh, gone down the M1, piled in there, and... As you can imagine, eight of us in a little room could be quite tight, but you know, we'd have brought a picnic up and all just talked together and had a lot of fun. But. Now, David, then, when Charlene was about six or seven, mm -hmm. you actually adopted her? That's right. Uh, tell us a wee bit about that. That was uh, a case of, for, really it was when six or seven, that was the, the fact when there was a legal uh, adoption. There was a long path up to that, you know, with social services, and all the different things that need to be sorted in that regard. But then uh, I do remember the day of the, of the formal hearing in that regard, where Charlene became officially a barn. She was officially adopted into her family, but that's, that was only ever, for us as kids, that, and from her mum and dad, that was only ever uh, signing on a page for something that had happened many, many, many years previous. It wasn't that look back to that day as almost anything really key, in all honesty. As far, as far as I remember, she'd always been my sister, and that was just something we had to go to to get a box ticked. And then she officially became one of us, but she'd been one of us for so long at that stage, so that was about seven years old. Okay, now, for I, her. I know we're, we're kind of having to Sweep cover a, a lot of territory in a, in a short space of time, but David, as, as Charlene then was, was growing up, yeah. uh, clearly loved mm -hmm. by you as a family, yeah. uh, but began to kind of struggle with her identity. Mm -hmm. T tell us a wee bit about what that looked like and how that played out. Yeah. This, we all, whenever we reach a certain age, we start to wrestle with who we are and think about who we are, our identity, all the things we care about, and all of that. And Charlene was no different from any of us in that she started to think about who she was, but for her it was so much harder, where really as we, she got towards her teenage years, she'd always been sharpy, she'd always been you know, laughing a lot, suddenly her personality really started to change. And really what began to happen would be that she really began to push everybody away who loved her. And it would be simple things at first, you know, like just in terms of really around different birthdays, she would begin to act up, really, really act up. And then it became every single day where we would, we would come home from school and you would know what would happen without fail. We'd come home from school and it would be suddenly just something would happen and she would spark and she'd lash out with the most, the most painful words, the most painful actions, sometimes physical, but mostly just the words and painful barbs thrown at all those around her. And every, I mean, this was every single day where you would know when you were coming home from school 
that it was going to be until three or four in the morning screaming, and then you were going to school with a mask on as if everything was fine. No, and I was not very good at that stage of talking to anyone in school. Act as if everything was fine, but you knew what was, and you dreaded coming home to an extent. You really, really dreaded coming home. And we very quickly, you know, began to really seek support, you know, from social services and everything. And very early on, they said that Charlene, they got psychological, you know, support for the family, and they said that Charlene had what they said was attachment disorder. What it meant was this that because she'd been cared for excellently in her first year by outstanding nurses and doctors, but because there hadn't been that one figure there, that one figure there constantly to bond with her, she had really reached a stage where she found it hard to attach to anybody, and she would push people away to avoid the pain of separation in the future. And any time we tried to show her love, she would completely reject it. And it was a case of where, it was so hard for her as well, because what would happen would be every night this would happen, and at the end she would just break down in tears, say, I'm so sorry, I don't mean the words I say, I don't mean this, it'll never happen again. And she wrote the most genuine, completely genuine, heartfelt letters that would be slipped under the door and all these kind of things, saying, I promise it'll never happen again, I don't mean it. But you knew, you knew what was going to happen. It was just going to be the same thing again. And it, you would watch her, and it would just be like something else took control of her completely. And it was so, 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 so difficult. And I remember, I was the older brother, and I just remember watching the rest of my sisters. I remember watching Rebecca just become a little bit more withdrawn, Natalie just getting more and more angry, and Bethany and Serena, just, who were the youngest, just terrified. And I was especially afraid for them, just that shining physically or something just would, would happen, because this went, on for, this went on for years. Nobody else really outside of the family would have known, but nobody, it was just a case of that constantly this, that these kind of barbs would be thrown. And I remember, yeah, thinking really personally, I've kept a lot of journals from then. I remember reaching a stage where I'm thinking, I was feeling almost that, from, a, from an emotional point of view, that I really hated her because of how she acted, you know, because it was a case of I saw the, really, the, the pain she was inflicting on everyone else, my mom and dad, my mom and dad crying, the things she would say, the things she would do, the lies, the stealing, the hoarding of food, all these little things that were just, it was just heartbreaking, but one thing I just remember feeling one night was, I remember just one night where I'd really reflected on this and thought, you know, emotionally, she's my sister, how can I feel this way, this rage and anger towards her? And a couple of things clicked with me. First of all, it clicked that, yes, I may emotionally at that stage, because she hadn't, I'm not exaggerating when I said it was probably about three years since she'd said anything nice to any of us. It was a case of where I remember thinking, yes, I may, from an emotional point of view, feel rage and anger towards her, but she was always my sister. The identity didn't change. Love is a deeper than that. And one thing I think our culture has completely lost is that fact that love is a choice. Love is something that is not an emotional burst that you feel euphoria and this great falling in love where it's all fantastic all the time. Love is that, is that choice to keep going even when things are hard. Because I think our culture completely misses it so much of the time. And there was one night where I do remember where, um, again, it was about three or four in the morning, and I came downstairs and mum was crying in the kitchen. And my sisters were up in bed, just, they were just in their rooms. They were awake, but they were in their rooms. And it had been a horrible night. But Charlene got to the stage now where she was just crying. And, you know, I went into her room. And she just said, Dave, I'm so sorry. I, I don't know why I say these things. And she said, I'm just so afraid that you're going to send me away after all that I've done. And I remember it sounds cheesy now saying it. It really does. But I just remember saying, Charlene, that's never going to happen. Once a bar, always a bar. <laughs> and... It was a case of where I went upstairs and I found a journal from that night. It was, it was kind of one of those strange phrases. That don't know where it came from. It was two things I wrote down. I just remember writing down, you know, never underestimate the cost of unconditional love, but it's a price worth paying. 
and also as well, just to saying that sometimes the most beautiful things have to be broken first, because they did, and my mum talks about one time near that where she had gone, she had dropped us all off at school, and she'd gone to, she would always go to read her journal and to pray, and she says she just wept in the car and said to God, God, we've honored you and followed you by, you know, want, bringing Charlene into our family, and we loved her dearly, but everything we pour on her, she, she does throw back, Surely, if this was the right thing, you would bless this. Why would we go through this? Because it was so painful for all of us. And she talked to someone on the phone. The person said to them, I said to my mum, you know, Janice, you really should, you know, think of, you know, possibly removing her because it's a case of all the rest of your, your children that could destroy all of you. And mum put the phone down and thought, that's something I will never do, ever. But she wept to God and she just opened her journal for that day and the reading was from Isaiah saying, great will be the peace of your family. And mum clung to that for years and prayed for that for years. And it was a long road, but and in the midst of it, we never thought there would be a resolution. But other things began to happen that brought more healing than I can describe. Okay, so dad and love for life, mm -hmm. the, the, this, this charity that worked with young people, particularly around the whole area of kind of sexual health and relationships, yes. had grown, and, but it had started to work in Uganda. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And your dad and Rebecca, I think, That's and right, yep. you had been out to Uganda. Yes. But you'd never been able to go as an entire family. Yes, that's true. But that changed in 2008. Tell it us, did. Tell us a wee bit about that. My dad, since he first went, I think it's a case that African Uganda can sometimes get in your blood. And ever since my dad first went, he wanted to bring the whole family out. And mum said, it's never going to happen. We, number one, we don't have the money. Number two, there may be different creatures there, mice, rats, and so on. I would not want to be near. So uh, it was never like, seemed an option. And really, just about 2007, just before Christmas, a family friend approached and said to mum and dad, look, I've been praying, and I really feel led to help to contribute to make this possible for you. And Again, for a while, mum was really uncertain, but they prayed about it and thought, okay, this is a clear leading. So that Christmas, we um, came downstairs and there was notes saying over Easter of 2008, we would be going out as a family. And I was really excited, but nervous, because I didn't know, especially Charlene, how the Bethany and Serena were very young at this stage. And uh, in terms of, I didn't know how Charlene would find things, but we went out in 2008. And all I can say is, it was hugely transformative. Charlene fell in love with Uganda. She fell in love with those kids, those kids that she met. We met a lot of incredible kids. We're going around different communities, different schools. And for example, one of the groups we were working with were what are called child-headed families. That means families where both parents are dead, often through HIV AIDS. And there, were, there was one girl, Harriet, for example, who was at the time 11 years old, was caring for her four younger brothers and sisters. She was the sole provider. And it was, Charlene met a lot of kids there. Kids who had lost, you know, who had been rejected, who had lost parents, who were sick and ill. And I think she felt a lot of affinity for them. In fact, I know she did because she said she did. And she, there's a lot of times I remember just sitting there and looking over and seeing her on the bus, just thinking, and just sitting there looking out the window and really contemplating. And when we came home, it wasn't that it was a switch and suddenly everything became good after that. And it's almost, almost in retrospect you look back, but that was such a pivotal moment for her where very, well, well, very shortly after that, things really, really began to heal, like hugely so. And even seeing Charlene's journals later on, where she wrote just down about how much she missed Uganda and how much she loved those kids, it was hugely transformative for all of us, but in particular for Charlene. David, uh, I'm not sure exactly how long after that trip, but Charlene began to deteriorate. That's, that's correct. Uh, 
and she was hospitalised yeah. yet again. And during her time in hospital, yeah. she made a major decision. Yes. Tell us about that. What had happened had been that um, Charlene up to this stage, she'd been in and out of hospital, but she'd always rallied, always rallied. And we grew used to that. Uh, maybe dad, you know, medically would have known, you know, that things were in downhill slope, and you're close, you never really see things. And she always rallied, and I grew to expect that. But when she got to her upper sixth year, she had to drop out of school, not because of grades, just because she physically couldn't do it anymore. She didn't need to sleep so much, medication, and she was in and out of hospital so much. That was the first thing that was hard for her. And then, then it came to the stage where my dad was with her, and one day they just... And by this stage, I should say, by this stage, things have really completely miraculously healed in terms of the fact of the emotional kind of uh, uh, scars with Charlene. But we were all... Well, sorry, Dad and Charlene were in the hospital room, and the consultant came in and said to Charlene, look, you're going to need a double lung transplant. You're going to have to go on the transplant list. And they talked to her about what that would mean. The difficulty of finding a donor. Because Charlene was very small in many ways. The difficulty of what that would mean in terms of the, her needing to be up to a certain weight to be there because she was underweight and so on. The chance of her body rejecting it, all the risks that, that would involve. And she, my dad said, Charlene just sat in silence the whole time. And she didn't say a word. And then the doctor left and... Dad spoke to her a bit, and she said, look, I just, I just don't know what to do. And my dad said, look, what we'll do is we'll do what we, al we always do whenever it comes to a family thing. We, would, we're, we talked about eating over the table here. We did as a family. We would always talk over meals. So dad said, let's all go out to Nando's. And <laughs> great place. So it's funny. I still remember. You remember the silly things. I remember actually getting the call and knowing immediately the gravity of it. I was sitting in my house playing with friends, playing Mario Kart of all things, and suddenly... I got a call from my dad, and I joked away, and he said, David, this is serious. We need to go out to Nando's. And uh, I was like, okay, that is fair enough. And he said, we've got news about Charlene. And he told me a little bit. And immediately, I, I just remember kind of almost like an icy shiver going down my back and realizing that this was serious. And I went into my room, and I talked to dad on the phone, and he said he'd pick me up soon. And it was dark in the room. I just remember sitting there and staring into the darkness and speaking my fears to God in the darkness. And listening for something, anything, and all I heard was silence. And we w went out as a family, and we talked. And Charlene, Charlene would never have let anything get her down. I cannot describe that enough. She was the most chirpy person. She never let anything beat her. But this is the one time I saw her down. She basically sat with her head on the table and wouldn't speak. And it was just like the world sank at her shoulders. And we all experienced things like that. You know the moment where you look across and you want more than anything else to bear some of that on your own shoulders, but you can't. There's that gap between people. You just can't. And I just remember my heart breaking. All of our hearts were breaking for her. We didn't know what to say because this was going to be a long road. She'd lost, she wanted to be at school. She couldn't be there. She now knew that she would need a double lung transplant and all the risks that would involve, the long road of the medication, the, the feeds, putting pumps straight into her stomach to get her weight up and all those different things that would mean. And it was just, we sat there and we just didn't know what to say. And then, and then it was just, like a switch. Charlene just sat up and looked at us and said, look, I'm going to be in this transplant list for a while and in hospital and for a while. Am, am I not? And Dad said, yes, you, if, you, know, you will. And she said, well, I'm not, if I'm not able to go to school and if I'm not able to uh, do, if I'm going to have to wait, what I want to do is I want to build a school in Uganda for those kids who couldn't go to school. And I'd like to do that with my time. How much would that cost? And Dad said, oh, I have no clue. Probably you're looking at about 50,000, 100,000. And Sharon said, we'll get that within six months. And I'm, 
I remember saying, Sharni, calm down here, that is not going to happen, let's be realistic here. And she said, Dave, oh, you have little faith. And um, she was right, within five months, people had been incredibly generous. Sharni became a high activity in hospital, she was on Facebook, she was blogging, she was writing, she was interviewed by BBC, by ITV, she, goodness knows, she was a mini celebrity and so on and these things, and it gave her such a focus where she just, yes, she was focused on getting her weight up and getting you know, the double, double lung transplant, but her real focus was in building this school. That was the drive. She made links with people in Uganda. Fingles of Life said they would build this, you know, we linked in with them to build the school. And that was her heart's focus. Just her focus in saying, if I, can't build a, if, I, if I can't go to school, if I'm going to wait for that, I want to make a difference in Uganda, those kids I knew. Going to play a wee short video. Sounds good. Uh, that that kind of is around that time. Yes. Please work. <laughs> I think it's one more press. Come on. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Excellent. I'm 19 years old and I've suffered from cystic fibrosis and I'm currently waiting on a double lung transplant. While I'm waiting, I hope to raise £70,000 to build a school in Uganda. Charlene has always had cystic fibrosis and has needed medication all her life. From time to time she's had to go into hospital for intravenous antibiotics and despite her, her condition she's always enjoyed life to the full. She's done well at school and has enjoyed all the things that her other children have enjoyed. Charlene has tried not to let her illness hold her back and even when in hospital she's pushed as far as she can to achieve what is possible. On one occasion even she left her hospital bed to abseil down the BT Tower in Belfast for charity. No one would have known that day that she had an intravenous line in her arm. On another occasion she slipped out of hospital for a few hours to do a fundraising firewalk. As a result of her deteriorating health she's had to drop out of school during her A-level year and she's now been placed on a waiting list for double lung transplantation. As a family we have always done things together and one of the highlights for us over the last few years was a trip we took together to Uganda in March 2008. We visited a lot of schools in Uganda and saw a lot of children as part of the project work we were involved in. We all benefited from the experience but Charlene fell in love with the children and with Uganda. When I was out in Uganda in 2008, I saw how little the children had. Many travelling miles to school, by foot, in tattered clothes, no shoes. <coughs> by the time they got to school, they received no food at school all day. Yet these children were content with what they had, and content with the life that they led. The school facilities were so poor, and they had so little. Despite it all, they were beautiful and seemed to be so content. When I had to drop out of school, I decided to use my time to fundraise to build a school in Uganda. That way, if I could not get to school, it would mean other children would get the chance of an education. We all had hoped to return to Uganda this year again, and Charlene planned to pick the school that she would build herself. Unfortunately, her health did not allow this to happen. So instead, she sent us on to look for a school for her to build. We looked at a number of different schools, 
and eventually picked a little school called Hidden Treasure at the edge of Kampala. The little school Hidden Treasure had about 80 pupils, but it was in a very needy area with many orphans from HIV, AIDS and from previous conflict. The current small wooden building that the school was housed in was being eaten by termites. They are so in need of a permanent building that will accommodate many more of the children in that needy local community. We sent the pictures of the school home to Charlene for her opinion. When I saw from the pictures how little the children of Hidden Treasure Primary School had, I knew that this was the one that I wanted to help build through Charlene's project. Charlene needs to raise £70,000. That's breaking their... So, yeah. she did? Yeah, she did. Yeah. She did. Yeah. But tell us what actually kind of happened just well, after that. Well, there was... I mean, it was a case of that really... For us, I, for me, I kind of thought... We all thought. We all knew how the story was going to end. It was going to be a case of where... Uh, school will be picked, the school will be built, and Charlene would get the call. She'd go across, she'd get the double lung transplant, she would go across the official opening, and it would be a miraculous story of God, she would be healed. We knew, we were certain of that, and we prayed that. We all prayed to it, we all clung to it, and we all knew surely that was going to be how it would end. That made sense in so many ways. It made sense as to how that would be. And it was a case of her shine was up and, up and down. She always had to have a bag packed because it, what would have had to happen would be if she got, if there were suitable lungs, she would have had to go across to Newcastle with a, a, a helicopter. We used to joke about that a lot. And she, there was a couple of times where we got a call we thought might be it, but it wasn't. And the bag was always packed. She was always ready. But she was in and out of hospital a lot, obviously with dips, with different infections at different stages. And there were some times where, I mean, it was so... It was so hard, there were sometimes you were afraid though that it wouldn't work out that way. I remember one time in 2009, October, and I remember I was at uni, so I was able, to, I would go across every day, obviously, as with Rebecca after school, or after school, after university, and would just call in with her. And that time, it was, we were across the Christian Union, I was having to speak about that night, but I knew that crossing the hospital, it was really not good news. So I remember sprinting across afterwards, and she had gotten an infection, and in her line, she was basically covered fully, oxygen mask and everything, and we were so scared that night that it would be the end. And mum and dad stayed the night before, I said, look, I don't have lectures at 10 tomorrow, I'll stay tonight. And I remember watching her and just being so afraid every breath would be the last. And just praying so hard to God, please God, please God. And there was a lot of, that was a long night. That was a long, long night. I remember a lot of things. I remember first start knowing the fact of realizing the true healing that there had been, even within all of us and our family. And, you know, in terms of that, it was completely transformative from where it had been three years before. And I realized even in the wrestling in my own heart that night, for example, that it was a case that Charlene's real healing had already happened. Her heart, her real acceptance of God's love. That was the true healing that had happened. I, set my, I tried to sleep, I slept in the chair beside, but I was every, set my alarm for every 20 minutes just to make, wake up to make sure she was okay. And by God's grace, she did rally, and she wasn't expected to survive that Christmas. She did, and she flourished, and again, we hoped. But there was that slow deterioration, and whenever, I've said it before, but whenever you're up close, you never see it, because it's slow. But eventually, she would need to be in a wheelchair, she was, and she had to be in a wheelchair all the time, which she found so hard. She was so independent, and she hated people almost 
having pity on her, like, looking down on her or thinking that she was weak in her words, but she had to be in a wheelchair because she couldn't even walk from here to the door without just getting exhausted. Then it became that she had to have oxygen for key times then all the time. And at first she'd resist that all the time, but then she'd grow to accept it because there was no other way. And really it was a case where she was really beginning to weaken. But, and there are things that were so hard for her, because I remember just even one night where we, as a family, it was right towards the end, we went across to, went across actually just and, and because we shopped so much with the of us in Tesco tokens, we went across the Culloden, and uh, great place. And that night, Sharon was very unwell, and she was just looking out the window, and there was a formal from, another, from a school arrived, and all these girls walking up the drive, all these guys, you know, in makeup and so on. And Sharon just said to my dad, because he was inside drawing up the IVs and so on for her, and said, you know, I remember in our sector going to the formal. I would just love to do that again. And this is a girl where she had scars all over her body from her operation. She had a scar right across her belly from the, from the one that she had weeks before, weeks after she was born. She had cuts all over from where she had needed to get have operations for the lines and so on. And for a 20-year-old girl, that was tough. But it was a case that we found later on as to what she had written down in her journal. And it was that verse we all know from Psalm 139. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. And she wrote below that, God, I'm sorry for complaining about the body you've given me and always trying to change it. Lord, I just ask that you will help me see myself the way you see me and also accept that I'm, I'm built like this for your sole purpose. And she never, even in those dark times, let herself get down because I vividly remember coming in every, every day into the hospital and saying, Sharon, how are you? And she said, I'm fine, how are you? And you would know people would come in and visit her and think she's actually doing very well, but you would know the day before she'd been, it had been really dicey for a time. But the deterioration was kept ongoing. And then in October, we were all at home, and that was a blessing. We were all there. Charlene would want to, even though she'd got to the point where she couldn't eat anymore, or anything, she'd always want to be sitting on the sofa in the kitchen where we would eat and where we would be together and just to be there. And it was a case of, I should say even just before that, by the way, because I missed it, but it's so important about her attitude. Sorry to jump back, but, because people always ask, did she ever blame God? And all I can say is, and this is just an example of, we'll give you a window into the person that she was. Mum one day asked her this, this was about a week before that, date in October. Mum had all those questions running around in their mind, and one day mum said, she just, they bubbled up within her, and it almost tasted like acid in her mouth, as she said to Charlene, Charlene, sure you blame God for this, for your illness, as Charlene's sitting there in a wheelchair, oxygen, pale, pallid, you know, really, really unwell, and Charlene looked up at her and pulled the mask off and said, why would I blame God? If I didn't have cystic fibrosis, I wouldn't be in this family, I wouldn't know Jesus, and I wouldn't be building a school in Uganda. She grasped what was really important. And later on that day, she talked to mum and dad and said, mum and dad, look, I know I'm going to make it, but if I don't, I want to talk about some things. First of all, will I go to heaven? And mum and dad said, Sharon, how do you go to heaven? She said, well, trust Jesus. And they said, well, that's that one solved then. And she laughed. And then she said, well, how can you, like, can you ever forgive me for what happened in the past? And mum and dad said, Charlene, that's forgotten. Jesus has taken everything of that and cast it as far as east is from the west, the bottom of the sea, that's forgotten. And the final thing Charlene said was, how God, I've never used my life for God. She couldn't see it, even though she was building a school in Uganda. And mum and dad talked to her and said, Charlene, look at the difference you're making. You're allowing God to use you. You have a willing servant heart. And look at how many children's lives that would transform. 
at that point, Charlene said that to mum that, you know, I would always, she said, mum, I always had a dream that I would have more kids than you. And, which in terms of up to seven or eight, who knows what that would have been like. Yeah, so, but she said that really, it was, I'm just afraid that might not happen. And mum said, Charlene, we hope and pray that you'll make it, but even if you don't, think of those kids in Uganda, you'd have a bigger family than I have ever dreamt of. And a week later, we were all together, and it's funny, again, those moments that you remember. I just remember sitting, I was typing an essay from a PGCE, and it's all those thoughts that go through your head that later on you realize just really don't matter. I was sitting there thinking about what was on TV that night, all these different things with friendships, all these different things about how I was going to do in the essay, all these different things that really wouldn't live past today. And all of a sudden, we heard the beeping from the kitchen, and I just remember us all flying into the room, and I realized very, like, we were all around her, and she was just lying on the sofa, and she was staring out into the garden, her mouth open, and immediately we knew what it meant. And the machine was beaming to say she wasn't bringing in oxygen, and we talked to her, and we told her how much we loved her. We talked at the school in Uganda, and we walked her home. And it was a case of with that, that she, I had been afraid that when it came to the end, she would fight so much, because it would be so painful for her. But she didn't. She seemed to have her eyes fixed out the window on something. And of course, none of us looked. We were focused on her. But she had her eyes focused out in the garden, fixed. And then she just almost smiled, shut her mouth, and it was as if she went to sleep. And I don't know, but I truly believe she saw Jesus. And we did truly walk her home, telling her there was kids in Uganda, telling her of the fact of how much we, how much we truly loved her. And yeah, it was a case of just that that was really those moments when we said goodbye to her. And it was really, really, that night, it was really natural. We just sat in that room and as people started to arrive, and it was just as if she was asleep there. And I tried to, be in the oldest, tried to take a lot of calls from mum and dad. And I'll always remember one, because it was a guy, Stephen Blevins, who was involved with Fields of Life, who we built in the school with at the time. And he phoned up to say how sorry he was, but he said, look, I just want to share this picture I have in my mind of Charlene now before the king, being able to breathe as she has never been able to breathe on earth, truly healed, playing with those kids that will, will know Christ because of how he allowed her to use her in the building of the school. And that was a picture we clung to. David, Kind of very, I know this is hard, but a kind of very significant thing happened the day of yeah. Charlene's funeral. Yes. The day of the this funeral. Is, this is 2010. This is 2010. The day of the funeral was, as all of us will know, have experienced, it's, you don't even remember really a lot of things. It's a flash. And it was hot there. It was a very, very wet day. It was a lot of things blurred past, but there was, some really there was something really significant happened that day. Because that day, as we were putting what was just her shell, she was not there anymore in the ground in Waringstown. That was the same day, exactly the same day where the ground was broken in the building of the school across in Uganda. And there's something really poignant about that, that the day her shell was put in the ground, that that was the beginning of that building of that school, which you can see the pictures up there now. And from where that had been, now you've got hundreds of kids going to that school who wouldn't have been able to otherwise. Now, where it's 10 past eight. Of course. So. <laughs> Hidden Treasure, the school was built? Yes. But not just Hidden Treasure School, how many yeah. other schools? There's now up in a very rural area in Kahara, there's another school built, and we're looking at supporting other primary schools there as well, and the work has moved on to Guatemala also. You know, so that's, yes, sorry, there's a number. Nip through here. Yeah, there's oh, no, let's go back. Um, there's, like, that's Kahara School as it was, Okay. and that is it now. Okay. So people have been so generous, it's made such a difference in that community hall. There's a lot of different work supporting pastors and able to provide wells and water for the local communities, uh, feeding programs, and 
building towards all of them in self-sustainability, supporting local farming and gospel work in, in, in local pastors, especially in Guatemala, where the, there's a real need for you know, the, the gospel. Okay, let me just go through here to, where is it? Supporting women as well. Yeah, creating better futures in Uganda That's and right. Guatemala. And this is... That's in Guatemala. That's the opening of a water project there. God, it's too long to go into now. But, the, but we were led completely out of the blue to Guatemala and Central America last, last summer. And there's now two schools there we're supporting. And local communities really rural. I was in the back of a 4x4 going up a mountain, clinging to... I was in the back seat holding on to the, or the back of the 4x4, looking down below. It was... Uh, pretty dicey at times, shall we say, dirt tracks, but really rural, and again, a real, witness, a real need for just the gospel to be preached to supporting a local pastor there. Now, going back yes. again shortly after Shining passed away. Yes. You wrote a book? That's correct. Have you got it there? I do, yes. So, wrote this book called Chosen. Yeah. Uh, why did you write it, David, and, and how? I hadn't really ever intended or wanted to write. I'm no writer, I would say, but Charlene had, a couple of weeks before she passed, when she, I went to visit her one day, she said, Dave, I want to write, I want my story to be written. And I said, well, that's great, you should write it. She said, no, I want you to write it. And I said, Charlene, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. And she said, look, I do want you to write it. And I said, why, what do you, what do you want to write about? She said, I want to write a book and I want, I want it warts and all. I want everything in it from the past, because I want a book to give hope to those who've been adopted who maybe are finding things hard, and to know the love God has for them. And I said, okay, I'll tell you what, Charlene, whenever you, you've got these lungs, you're healed, we'll write this story together. And that was the ending that was planned, you know, that we talked about and planned. After, after she passed, I, I didn't want to touch it for a long time. I just didn't want to. And I just didn't feel ready, and I threw myself into work into my job and into everything on that. And at the time it was helping out with CU committee and PGC, then the job, I threw myself into that and didn't, I didn't really talk to people as I should have. And it reached a point about a year later, basically actually it was a year later exactly, where I just physically hit the wall and I got really physically sick and I was just in the house for a long time. I couldn't, you know, I just was really, really physically unwell. And at that stage I thought back and thought I made a promise here. And I sat down and I wrote about 100,000 words over five days, just really blitzed it. And after that, that was it. I never intended, I just thought, that's written, that's I've done my part, that was it. I never really intended for it to be published or anything. And I, in fact, I sat on it for a long time because that was back to start 2012. But then, again, long, too long a story, but doors opened up and about a year ago it was published. It was reduced down from 100,000 words. <laughs> but, you know, and then, yeah, it's been published a year ago. So if, if anybody does want to read a, a, a kind of fuller version of, of, of the story, uh, please do pick up a copy of Chosen and get yes. it on Amazon. David, you're heading out to Uganda? That's correct. Uh, when are you doing that? Going on the 28th of June until the 12th of July. And you're taking a team from your school? That's right. There's 11 girls going from the school. Okay. And then tell us your plans uh, for next year. Are. Yeah, my next year, the school's been really, really good to me, and they've given me an opportunity to go on uh, a career break for a year, and I'm going to be going across to Edinburgh to study uh, Masters of International Development, tying into everything with the with Charlene's project and everything on that. And the school have been brilliant; they're holding my job for a year, and looking forward to that. So I'll be away from mid-September on for a year study on that. So, David, is there something else, kind of like closing thought? Yeah. Really, when I wrote the book, it did lead me to really think about a lot of things. 
and really reflect and shine his life. And there's really just a, really a couple of things really quickly I would say. First of all, one thing that really, really struck me is the fact that in the midst of things, it seemed a mess whenever there was the painful family things, whenever Shani was ill and it seemed, how could God be in this? But it's only when you take a step back, you realize the magnificent picture he's weaving. And one of Shani, we obviously Shani journal quite a lot, wrote things online, and one of the, actually this was literally written a matter of days before she passed, and she wrote this down, and this is her words. She wrote down the verse that we all know, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future, from Jeremiah 29, 11. And she wrote below, this verse is amazing. It assures us that God knows the plans he has for each and every one of us individually and that we have to trust him. He also assures us in this verse that the plans he has for us are plans for good and not for disaster. This can be hard, especially when something bad happens that is so easy to blame God. What we instead must do is to seek God's strength to get us through these, these tough times and he will see you through. Of course, things don't always happen the way we want and God takes us a completely different route than we wanted to go in our lives. How often, though, has that happened? When you look back, we see that our own original plan totally wouldn't have worked, and yet the path God took you down was the best thing ever. We just need to learn to trust him. And the story didn't end as I'd planned, but I look now and see every time we visit Uganda, Charlene is there. One, on the official opening of the school, mum saw this little child who was brought up to her, and her older sister introduced her and said, we've named this, this girl Charlene. And mum looked into these brown eyes and she talks about how she thought back and remembered Charlene, you know, first day of school, those brown eyes, the first day, you know, in terms of playing out in the garden, whenever she first saw her, and then the brown eyes of this child, and she realized how God had used her life so powerfully for him, which leads on to just a second thought, which is really the point of how God can use any of us. But the world standard, Charlene was nothing. She was born, left alone the first year of her life in hospital. She, in terms of was sick, she was ill, she had cystic fibrosis. She, at school, she did, did all right, but she didn't, uh, do, uh, didn't do fantastically and by the world standards. But what really mattered? On the day of the funeral, that morning, we all sat around the table and read that, that bit from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers as important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. And that gives me encouragement. And all of us, I think. Because Sharnin gave what little she had by the world's standards to God, and he used it mightily. Because I think of myself and think how many mistakes I make, how flawed I am as a human being, as we all are. But if we give what we have to God, he can use it powerfully, not because of anything in us, but because he is good and because he is almighty. And I guess the last thing of all, because it made me think again when I was thinking of all of this, is what are we really living for? Because whenever we were around Charlie and Dan, we were not talking about money. We were not talking about popularity. We were just talking about what really mattered, the gospel and about the fact of the impact that she was having for justice. And it challenges me more and more how I spend my money. When it comes to the future, when I, if I have suddenly more money, will I spend it more, will we, will we spend it all on more and more things for ourselves, treasures on earth? Or maybe to sponsor children? Maybe to support missionaries? Because ultimately when it comes to standing before the throne, it's not gonna be that God says, I wish you kept a bit more money for yourself. It'll be, I was hungry and you clothed me. I was, uh, I, was, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was naked and you clothed me. And it also challenged me about what I pray for. I talk about having brothers and sisters in the faith, but I look at the refugee crisis and I think, how much of my prayers, yes, God wants to hear about prayers for ourselves. Of course he does. But how much of my prayers are focused on me? 
I have five younger sisters. If I thought any of them were being trafficked, having to flee across the Mediterranean, I would move heaven and earth to try to change that. But I flippantly talk about brothers and sisters in the faith, but I don't pray as if they are. And that challenges me hugely. So it's a daily struggle, as Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he, calls him, he bids him come and die. And I realize constantly that I need, and we all need to seek, what are we really living for? Are we living for him? Are we given another heartbeat, another breath to live for him? Or are instead we living and talking about things that just really won't live past today? So that's my challenge to myself and to all of us, I think. David, thank you so thank much you. for being prepared to kind of share that story. Really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you very uh, much, David.